Well, we're over in 1 Samuel chapter 18. Last week we took a look at Abram. We saw that it took him a long time to get four commands followed. Four commands right. But when he did, boy, did he open up some things. And it was good for him. And then he progressed more. We could keep on going with the life of Abraham because how many can hear the language of assumption when he and his wife got together and said, perhaps the Lord will give me a baby. (laughs) Boy, that's not the language of of assumption. They didn't ask the Lord. They They didn't bother trying to seek him on that. They just came up with their own plans and that's what assumptions are. So we could have spent some more time on that because not only did he still live in assumptions there, he still lived in assumptions in other places after that. But we're going to give Abraham a break here and we're going to move on to another. And if you're up on Facebook, we ask you this question, what does it mean when you eye someone? Doesn't it mean you have become suspicious of their motives? Dissatisfied maybe with how they're carrying out their job or their responsibilities of course we always have reasons why if we have an eye for someone we're kind of watching that what they do we got a reason why and that reason why it justifies it but when we eye others when we have that suspicious eye on other people we lose sight of the path that we're supposed to be on and we wander out of our boundaries we're going to look at an example here this morning of someone that this was disastrous for and that's over in First Samuel, chapter 18. Start off here with verse 1. Oh, before we did that, I wanted to remind you of this. Four things, or three things we looked at last time that the enemy will try and do, that no matter how simple God's Word is to you, the enemy will try to corrupt it. He will try to mess it up. He will first, he will try to corrupt its message. If that doesn't work, he will try and lessen its importance to you. And if that doesn't work, he will make it seem impossible to do. This week, I wonder how many people had a message they had from God, attempted to be corrupted, lessened, or made to feel it was impossible to do. Understand, daily maintenance is required when we have a word from God. You've got to stay at it. You've got to keep it in front of you. Don't let it fall. Don't let it go by the wayside. Now, verse 1. Now, when he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took him that day and would not let him go to his father's house anymore, speaking of David. And Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and behaved wisely. And Saul sent him over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul, his, Saul's servants. Now it happened, which you always love it when the, the word does that. <clears throat> now it happened, as they were coming home, when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistines, that the woman had come out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. So the women sang as they danced and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Then Saul was very angry and the saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousand and to me they have only ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? 
Now what we see here is that God is developing, he is forming bonds for, that will help Saul. He's forming bonds between David and Jonathan. Of all the people in the kingdom up to this point that are there to help Saul, his son Jonathan is one of the most, most important. He was one of his greatest warriors. He was one of his most entrusted warriors. He had position in the high position in the army. Saul relied a great deal on his son. And what God does is he sends a man by the name of David to come along and to help Jonathan and to help Saul. Now, both of those things benefit Saul. Because if you make Jonathan a better person or a better warrior, doesn't that help Saul? And when David comes alongside Jonathan, Jonathan has someone who's of the same mindset, who looks at things that are impossible as though they're possible. Oh, how much better is it when you have somebody who looks at something that's impossible and says, let's do it. You ever feel empowered by that? Oh, I tell you what, I've had some people in my life that uh, they just don't take no for an answer. And I don't like taking no for an answer. And when we get paired up together, it just seems like we are empowered. We, we help each other. When you're out there by yourself and you've got a lot of people who say, ah, you can't do that. No, you can't go there. It, they don't empower you. But when you get, you don't need many. You have that mindset, I can do anything. All you need is just one other person who comes alongside you and says, you know what? We can do anything. We can do it. And you just feel empowered to get it done. And so Jonathan, he may have been out there all by himself most of the time, just doing his own, his own thing. He's, he's, he's wishing that people would be there, that people would see this as uh, the, the things that can be accomplished, but just not a whole lot of people there. And then David comes along. And immediately he is drawn to David. You see, when you get people of this mentality, you are immediately drawn to them. There's just a different, a different mentality that's there. You know, sometimes people think that just because you're a runner, you like all runners. <laughs> but I, I have found out over, my, over the course of my thing, this is nothing scientific or I don't think it's anywhere. I've, I've developed, there's three mentalities of runners. Three different mentalities of runners. The first mentality is those people who go out because they want to get in shape. They want to lose weight. Or they just want to run a couple of races. They don't care if they win the race. They don't care if they run the race fast. They just want to finish the race. And they go out there and they run on a regular basis. If it rains, they'll not run. If it's too cold, they won't run. They'll wait for the nice days and they go on out there and they have fun. They, they just run for fun or to get in shape or to lose weight. That's it. That's their mentality. And it's a good mentality. That's all right. That's the first one. The second one is track people. Now, track people have to do everything fast. We don't care how far we go if we're a track person. All we care about is, did we run it faster than yesterday? It is all about speed. It's about shaving seconds or milliseconds off of a time. And generally, we focus on shorter distances. We don't like the long stuff. Track mentality is 400-yard dash, mile, half mile, stuff like that. And and get it done, and they always, always want to beat everyone else. It's highly important that we beat everyone else in the field. That's the, that's the important thing. In fact, if you went through a week and you missed three workouts, but you beat somebody, it was a good week. 
that's a track mentality. Then there's the cross-country mentality. Very different from the track mentality. Cross-country mentality, it's all about how you get it done. It isn't good enough just to have a good race. You had to have a good week. You had to be out there and hit every workout. You have to run far. It's the, none of this stuff, you know, I'm only going to do a mile today. That is not in the language of a cross-country runner. And a cross-country runner, if it does not have multiple miles in the workout, it is not even worth mentioning. Cross-country mentality is, if it's bad weather, it's a good day to run. If it's good weather, it's a good day to run. It doesn't matter what the weather is, it's a good day to run. That's the mentality. And when you get people together who are runners, and if they're cross-country mentality, instantly there's a bond. Never met them before, but instantly there's a bond. Oh, hey, we can, we can do this. And you go out and you do things. Track people, as soon as they find another track person, there's a bond. Let's get on the track and let's begin to, to do, because there's a, there's a mental bond that's there. If you get a person who just wants to run for being, being in shape and so forth, and they get around a cross-country runner, they think they are weird, they are strange, and get them out of my life. <laughs> because the mentality is different. So just because you have the same purpose, we want to run, doesn't mean you have the same mentality. And see, this is, this is David and Jonathan. They're both in the army. There's a whole lot of people that are in the army. There's a whole lot of people that are warriors. But they don't all have the same mentality. And when David comes along, all of a sudden, here is someone that Jonathan can grab hold of. Ah, this is someone who sees things the same way I do. And Jonathan just steps up his game. He becomes even better of a warrior, even better of a leader. And it's easier for him to take the stuff that comes from his army because afterwards he can go out to David and they can chat about it and they can encourage each other because David won't ever tell him yeah, those guys are no good. He'll tell them, Jonathan, you can, you can inspire these people. You can make these people become better. And Jonathan says, yeah, you're, you're right. I know I can. So Jonathan became a better leader and David became a better leader because of Jonathan. They helped each other. That union is going to help Israel and it's going to help Saul. It's going to make Saul a better king. It's going to make Saul have a better army. If you had one Jonathan and you were good, how much better if you now have a Jonathan and a David? And we see from the life of David that he's able to inspire people and he's able to get people like the, the three and the 30 and the 300 and people who did such incredible feats in the area of warfare. But he inspired them. Nobody wanted them up until then. How many of those same people did Jonathan inspire? And now they have the army being populated by all these folks that are being inspired by a Jonathan and a David. The army's getting better. So much so that they go out to battle and thousands of Philistines die. They go out to battle against the enemies of Israel and all of these enemies of Israel perish. Not just at the hands of Jonathan and David. Not just at the hands of Saul. But all the other men that have been inspired by this leadership. And they come back from another victory. And the women come from all the cities that are all around. And they begin to play instruments. Saul has slain his thousands. 
and David his tens of thousands. Saul heard that. And he became angry. So God is forming these bonds. He's even forming the bond between Saul and David. And I would, it doesn't say this, but I'll bet you even the bond between Saul and Jonathan is getting better. Can you imagine if David told stories? You think your dad is bad? My dad left me in the field when the prophet came. I told my stories of how God helped me kill a bear and a lion. And my dad didn't even believe me. You think you got it bad? Your dad's all right. And, and David probably began to point out some of the things about Saul. Look at your dad here. Look at your dad here. He probably helped the, the relationship between Saul and Jonathan. So that that bond was getting better. And David had a bond with, with Saul as well. So much so that it said that it finally he said, he, you can't go home anymore. I need you too much. Can you imagine that? Having somebody that God has brought along, brought on your path, and you say, boy, I'll tell you what, I need them. I need them in my life. You can no longer go home. I need you here. Has God done some things to help Saul? Oh, he's done some things to build that up. See, God called Saul to be king for the purpose of delivering Israel from the Philistines. But Saul, did, uh, God didn't just leave Saul in a place, just go out there and do it. He said, I'm going to send you some people. And he, he has Jonathan. And he built him up. And he sent David. And who knows who else he sent? But he sent these people. And they came to him. Saul was able to recognize the benefit that they were for his, his kingdom and himself. He saw the benefit of when David would play the music and the troubling spirit that would be on the inside of him would settle down. That was a benefit for Saul. I don't know about you, but as a parent, if you see your son or your daughter, have a, a friend that is a good friendship. And it's a strong friendship. And this friendship makes them better. How many of you are excited about that? You get, oh God, I'm so glad that you sent this person along. What a help they are to my son, to my daughter. All these things are going on. All these things are, are getting better. David's getting better. Jonathan's getting better. Saul's getting better. The army's getting better. The Philistines are being defeated. And Israel's walking in victory. And then, here's the song. Saul has slain his thousands. And David, his ten thousands. Saul was angry. And the saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousand. And to me, they have only described thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? Now you're going to see here, he's made a few assumptions. First off, he's assumed that David will use this newfound popularity and his growing strength to take the kingdom from Saul. He's afraid that David is going to come and take it doesn't seem that he's so much afraid that God's going to give it to him. He's afraid that David's going to come and take it. He's eyeing him. He's watching him. He's suspicious. David, you are going to do something to take this kingdom away from me. I don't know what it is. But I know, I know how my mind, it's all saying, I know how my mind works. If I heard that, my mind would go here. I'm sure that yours is as well. 
and begin to attribute this to, to Saul. Now David had success in everything he took on. But it was how he went about it that caused him to grow in the confidence of the people. It wasn't just that he had slain these thousands. It was how he went about it. It was how he conducted himself amongst the people. It was somehow how he conducted himself among the army. Don't you know that among the people, some of these army folks, their husbands, and after the battle, they would come home and they would talk about stories. They would probably tell some stories of David. Mia would like this one. They probably came home and told stories. You like stories. <laughs> you want stories. And so they would come home and they sit around the table and they said, Dad, what happened on the battlefield? Son, before we even got in the battlefield, it was amazing. David pulled me aside. And he said, now look, when you go out in that battlefield, this is what I want you to do. And he began to give him some, some pointers. You ever had somebody pull you aside and give you some pointers? Give you something to help you out? Now, of course, in cross country, you have a coach. I had a coach in cross country up at Kings. And um, he didn't pay any attention to me at all. First year I went through, you didn't pay a, any attention. Once in a while, I get mentioned from him. But, you know, I was my first year going out. I wasn't really amongst the, the top, top people. And so when I went home in the, the summer, as my question was, I ran. I ran everywhere. I ran probably about 70, 100 miles a week to get ready for the fall. So when I got in there in the fall, out of the dozen or so people that were on the team, I was the only one in shape. The only one in shape. The only one who could run successive miles. Came into camp that way. And so what would happen was I, we would go out, we would do two-a-days. We came in, we have camp, 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 my my best time, best time. Come in there and all you have to do is eat, sleep, and run. No other responsibilities. And you had to run twice a day, which was phenomenal. Can I do it three times? I just, I love cross-country camp. And so I got in there and I remember the first time we went out there and we had a sign. It was a small, small route. It was a little eight-mile route we were going to do. And so I got out there and I ran the eight-mile route. And I, I got in and I cooled down and I stretched and I went in and I showered and I got dressed before the next guy came back. Blew the entire field out of the way. And I didn't even run it hard. And my coach took notice of that. And he saw that I was in better shape and he said, you know, it's a shame because this week we could be focusing on, this is the only time he paid attention to it. He, <laughs> he said, this week... We could really be, you could really get some stuff out of intervals, but no one else is ready. He said, not a single person came in this camp in shape. You're the only one. So we, we can't really do them. And so we, we went on through, and I still was ahead of everybody. And we got to the first race. This is the only time he ever did this. Got to the first race, and he pulled me aside. And he told me this story. He said, Steve, because this was a, we were on a wake field. It was a, you know, one we hadn't run before. And this, they drove us around on it. And on the field, there was a particular hill that was so steep, you could not run out of it. You had to use your hands. You had to kind of run, crawl, climb to get up this, this hill. It was steep. I never saw a, st a steeper hill. And it was right after you're running on a dried up creek bed. We actually ran on a dried up creek bed. I don't know why they didn't just move it off to the side 
and run off. We're running all these little boulders and stuff, so they, you know, be careful you don't twist your ankle and stuff. But he said, he said, when you get to that hill, he says, I don't want you holding back anything for that hill. That hill is intimidating a lot of people. He says, but you're in better shape than anyone here. I want you to go after this race like that hill's not there. And when you get to that hill, you go up with everything you got. And then when you get to the top of that hill, I want you to take off. Okay, coach? Okay, yeah, okay. So, you know, it's easy to hear that. So we got out there. I got to the base of that hill. I pushed it as much as I could, got to the base of that hill, and I crawled it up with everything that I had to get up to the top of that hill. And then all I was thinking about when I got to the top of that hill was take off. So I put everything in and I took off. And I ran as hard as I could. And there was a guy on the team who was behind me. And he says, man, what happened to you? He said, I was, I was trying to, to stay with you. And I was until we got to the top of the hill. And then you took off. That was the word he used. Then you just took off. I thought, all right, well, I did that. Now, that's the only time he ever, ever coached me, every time he ever pulled aside. But you see, he gave me something to do. And I did it. Can you imagine that David pulled someone aside and said, hey, I'm going to put you in a special spot in the battle. It may not look like a whole lot, but I think this is going to happen. I think people are going to come over this way. And if you are there, you will keep them from flanking the army. Can you do this? I can do it. And he pulled somebody else aside. And he told them, he says, look, you've got a special skill in the way that you handle your shield. I want you to go in there with that shield. And he began to coach them how to do it. Can you see David as a leader doing this? And he would go around to different ones and he would tell them, this is how you approach the battle. This is what I want you to do. Each one had a different assignment. And they would come home and they would sit around and they would talk to their families about it. David pulled me aside and he told me this thing. I, and I wasn't sure that I could do it. I wasn't even sure that it was all that important. But oh man, was it. It's like David saw something in the battle that no one else saw. And when he put me there, all of a sudden these Philistines started coming over. And if I wasn't there, the battle may have gone different. And they begin to bring stories like this home and they begin to tell stories like this. And, and of course, you know, once he tells a story at the dinner table, how many you don't know the wives are out there telling each other the stories? And the kids are out there telling the stories. And pretty soon the stories went around pretty far about these things that David was doing out in the battle. Not just that he was killing Philistines, but he was coaching them. He was making them better. We know that happened because his 600 men did feats, did things that no one had imagined. They were quite a fighting force. And Jonathan, Jonathan and David are the same mindset. If Jonathan was doing this stuff before, he's just, he's upped his game. They may be having meetings. David and Jonathan may be having meetings before the battle. What are you going to tell somebody? Well, I got this one guy. I'm going to put him here. I'm going to do this. And they begin to talk about it to each other. And then they get out there and they talk to the people. But then after a while, they know. Jonathan's saying, David's going to ask me, who am I challenging? David's saying, Jonathan's going to ask me, who am I challenging? And they began to formulate even more. And if maybe before they were formulating things for five or ten people, now they're doing it for ten or twenty or thirty or more. And they're equipping more. And the stories are going around about them. And the people are seeing, not only is he victorious, but he operates in wisdom.
in all the things that he does. What an awesome leader. Now it says, uh, in the words, now it happened. This is just a normal, successful day, just like any other. We've had many successful days before. We've had many days where we've gone out to battle and we've won. It's just like any other successful day that we've had. But now it happened that this time the women sang a song and Saul, Saul heard it. If you were David, you may have been feeling pretty good at the events of the day. You may be coming back and saying, man, I got 20 Philistines today. Whatever it was, whatever kind of victories he had, he, he may be coming back and saying, mm, this happened. He may be feeling pretty good about it. Has no idea what's going on. Other people felt pretty good too. They came out here singing songs. So then Saul hears this. David has slain his tens of thousands. And as soon as they hear those words, the accuser of the brethren, the enemy himself, gets in the ear of Saul. And he speaks these words. If they have ascribed to David ten times what they did to you, what more can he have but your kingdom? Your kingship. What more can he have beside that? I put this in your outline. Got some blanks to it. Make sure you get this. This is the... This is important to know. You may have already learned this. But Satan doesn't have to inspire the words of others to use them. Satan doesn't have to inspire the words of others to use them. The enemy doesn't have to get in the ear of these women and give them the lyrics to the song. Now it goes like this. Saul has slain his thousands. David is tens of thousands. He doesn't have to do that. They're just singing a song. They're just singing a song based on the things that they've seen going on. And Satan hears that and uses it. Just because he didn't inspire the words of other people around you doesn't mean he can't use them against you. He will try and do it. So when you hear that people have sung songs around you, David has slain his tens of thousands, and people have gotten a bad idea about you from that. Don't, don't think that the enemy inspired those people to sing those songs. They may have, but it doesn't mean those people don't have to be following any bad inspiration at all. Because the enemy will take any opportunity he can to use words that are spoken and turn people against you. Now this word for Saul had brought pressure to him. It's not supposed to bring pressure. It's not supposed to bring this stuff in. But it brought pressure on him. The pressure that comes in is, the purpose of it is to change the belief or to create a new one. Yeah, up to this point, he's believed that David has been a good guy, a help. But this pressure from this little whispering in the ear is setting to change that. Now, a lot of times when pressure comes on our lives, 
and it reveals problems, we think the answer is let's get away from the pressure. But that won't fix the problem. Has anybody in your, in your home had a leak in the plumbing? Anybody had a leak in the plumbing? Just kind of sprung a leak. Seems like it happens every once in a while. You get a, you get a leak in the plumbing. If you get a leak in the plumbing, what is the best way to stop it from spraying water all over the house? Turn the water off. When you turn the water off, what happens to the leak that is springing out into the house? It stops. But is the problem fixed? It is not. We didn't fix the problem. We just eliminated the pressure. See, for a lot of people, they just want to eliminate the pressure. Get out of the pressure, and then the leak will stop. No, we just, we're not exposing the, the problem anymore. We have to, we have to, we have to do something, do something else to fix it. So saw I David from that day forward. Now, if you're going to watch somebody with a suspicious eye, that takes work, doesn't it? I mean, I wasn't watching him at all with a suspicious eye before. Now I'm watching him with a suspicious eye. That takes some effort. If you've got a brother or sister who's messing with your stuff, you suspect that they're messing with your stuff, you're watching them with a suspicious eye. And so now every time that brother or sister goes somewhere in the house, you have to kind of follow behind because I just know they're going to get into my stuff. And you want to catch them. So before you were relaxed, brother or sister would leave the room. No big deal. But now all of a sudden, because you have this suspicion, every time they leave the room and they go upstairs, incognito, you must follow them. So you climb silently up the stairs, peek around the corner to see what are they doing? Where are they going? And maybe he doesn't turn up anything and you go back to doing what you're doing. But you just lost 15 minutes doing nothing. And then an hour later, they do something else. I need to follow them. And so you go and you, and you follow them again. And this keeps going on. And you lose five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Pretty soon your day's chopped up. Instead of just sitting down doing your work, you got to keep getting up. Because you're suspicious. They're going to get into something. And this can go on for a day, two days, three days, four days, five. It can go for weeks and months. And we don't seem to tire of it. We keep going. Even though it's putting more pressure on us. And it's causing us not to be as productive. This isn't good. We have to, we have to get away from that. But this is what Saul is doing. He's eyeing David from that day forward. Verse, uh, verse 10. And it happened on the next day that the distressing spirit from God came upon Saul and he prophesied inside the house. So David played with his hand as at other times, but there was a spear in Saul's hand. 
And Saul cast the spear, for he said, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped his presence twice. So everything with David and Saul is going well. Until the ladies sing the song, the enemy whispers in Saul's ear. His suspicion is brought up, and now he's watching him. The next day, he's ready to kill him. One day, he's going out to battle to help him defeat Philistines. And the next day, Saul is ready to kill him. Throws a spear at him. Doesn't just plan it. Doesn't just say he wants to. He actually does it. Throws a spear. He had a spear in his hand. Now, after somebody throws a spear at you, if your boss at work throws a spear at you, how many of you are not going back filing something with HR? <clears throat> we got to do something. But apparently, David went back to work. Because he didn't do this once, he did it twice. David's kind of a trusting sort. I think most of us would lose our trust of anybody who throws a spear at us. Even if they came to us and said, you know, I really didn't mean to throw that spear at you. I don't know what was going on. <coughs> what was that? There was a, there was a, the dragonfly, was, I was afraid for your safety. <laughs> Just try to take that thing out. Hmm. He says, I will pin David to the wall. That was his purpose. His purpose was to take that spear, drive it through the body of David so that the spear would then embed itself into the wall. That's, his, that's what he wanted to do. That's what his plan was. And David escaped. Hmm. That's one of those things you want to see the videotape on, don't you? How does that happen? How does David escape if he's not suspicious at all of Saul, just Saul suspicious of him? Does David notice a change in Saul? And he's wondering, what's, what's he going to do? Does the Spirit of God warn him, be careful? I don't know what, what happened, but somehow he picked up on it and got away. Now, once the accuser's words have become part of our beliefs and we meditate upon them, our thoughts turn into actions. That's what happened with him. The accuser brought words into the mind of Saul. David's after your throne. Probably into the point where he's saying David is going to try and kill you, get you out of the way so that he can take over the throne. You better kill him before he kills you. And by the next day, after meditating on these words, thinking all these thoughts, he's ready to act. In one day, he's ready to take somebody who was the biggest help in his kingdom, took care of Goliath, brought huge victory that day, and has gone out and brought more victories every time he goes out. He's played his, his harp, and it's soothed. Saul. See, many believers today, we've left what was intended to help us. Even things that have helped in the past, things that are helping in the present, 
We left it because of a thought, because of an assumption. We saw something, we heard something, and the enemy came and whispered in our ear, David's after your kingdom. So-and-so's after your job. Whatever it might be that they whisper in our ear, it's an accuser's vocabulary. It's not our God because our God's vocabulary is filled with grace and mercy. But the accuser's is not. And how many Christians will hear the accuser, hear his words, and accept them into themselves? Meditate upon them. Word of God tells us, meditate on good things. Don't meditate on the bad things. Meditate on good things. It gives you a list of a bunch of good things to meditate on. And yet, how many times have we left the list to meditate? What did that person mean when they said, I've got to figure this out? Saul could have just said, David, are you after my kingdom? But he didn't do that. Because you see, we've gotten into the area of assumptions. He'd rather assume David is after his kingdom than go up and ask for the right information. Now, assumptions, once we, get it, once we get the assumption, remember, assumptions come with deception. If I accept the assumption, I receive the deception. If I retained the deception, until I get that deception out, truth will be blocked. I will not see or hear truth on that matter I have accepted the assumption on. Now, you could do it in your life and whatever you're doing, but just take a look at here for Saul. If one of Saul, if Jonathan came to Saul and told Saul, David's not after your kingdom. David's not coming after your life. Would Saul listen? In fact, if you jump ahead a couple of chapters, you're going to see Jonathan's going to do just that. He's going to pull his father aside and say, David is, he's not after you. And Saul would not hear it because of the assumption and the deception that it brought. I'll tell you what, assumptions are harmful. They block us from the truth. We won't seek after the truth because we have the assumption. And I know the assumption is right. I know you're trying to get the kingdom. I know you're trying to hurt me. I know you're trying to take my job. Because I have the assumption. And someone can speak, no, I, I don't want your job. What do they say? You're lying. I know you want my job. I don't know if you've ever had this, but can you imagine if someone's saying, yeah, I know you want my job, and you're thinking, this is what your thoughts are. I don't want your job. It doesn't pay as much as my job. <laughs> but you can't say that out loud. But that person is convinced that you want their job, even though you're saying, no, they pay me more to do my job than they would pay me to do your job. I'd rather stay with my job. I want your job. Now Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Therefore Saul removed him from his presence and made him his captain over a thousand, and he went out and came in before the people. So Saul, he's afraid of David because the Lord was with him. Doesn't that seem weird? Man, the Lord is with him. Makes me scared. 
Saul's supposed to be doing the Lord's business. But he's afraid of somebody because the Spirit of God is on him. See, when you bring in deception through assumption, fear will also come. You will get fear. He was afraid of David because the Lord was with him but had departed from Saul. I know the Lord left me. I can tell the Lord's on him. So Saul removed him from his presence and he to get this guy out of here. He made him his captain over a thousand and went out and came in before the people. Whether that was a promotion or a demotion, I don't know. But it was a change. He no longer had access to the palace. And he was sent out from his presence. And he's got a thousand now he's in charge of. Some of them may be asking, David, why are you, why are you doing this now? Uh, this is where I've been assigned. But you were doing so much in your other assignment. Why would they, why would they reassign you? I don't know. This is just what they told me to do. Can you imagine the confusion that would be in the army? Why would you reassign someone who is flourishing at whatever their position is? The army is flourishing at whatever his position is. They're going out and having great victories because of what he's doing. Why would you change that? Verse 14, And David behaved wisely in all his ways, and the Lord was with him. Therefore, when Saul saw, that's always fun to say, isn't it? That he behaved very wisely, he was afraid of him. So he's afraid of him because the Spirit of God is on him, and he's afraid of him because he's behaving wisely. So if he acted like a fool, he'd be all right. So we, so we are led to believe. But all of Israel and Judah loved David because he went out and came in before them. So he took this new position and he's not in the, in the palace as much, but he's among the people. And so the people are seeing David firsthand. Before they're hearing stories, now they're seeing him firsthand. Somehow this gave them a place to see David firsthand more than they saw him before. And they, they watched David and said, man, I heard the stories. But to see him in operation. Wow. I've never seen a man of war handle situations like this. And so the reputation of David among the people got to be better. Understand this. The enemy and people that are against you may put you in places where they think you will not do well. But God will take those places and He will cause you to excel. And He will cause you to excel in the right people. Sometimes we'll look back on it and say, you know what? If you hadn't demoted me, if you hadn't changed my position and put me out here, I wouldn't have met this person. I wouldn't have seen this. I wouldn't have had this contact. And I would not have the opportunity I have now. But David just kept his attitude up. See, when someone else gains what we lost, we become jealous, envious, and find blame in them. David did not cause Saul to lose the presence of the Lord, the anointing on his life. Did not cause him to lose it. That was all Saul. David wasn't even the picture when Saul lost it. David was out there taking care of sheep, killing lions and bears. Wasn't that on the field? By the time David approaches the field with Goliath, 
he had already done the things that caused God to reject him. But Saul's going to blame him anyway. Just keep that in mind when at work, different places you are, you get blamed for something that you didn't do. Think of David. So David behaved wisely in all his ways and the Lord was with him. Therefore, when Saul saw that he behaved very wisely, he was afraid of him. In other words, he was more afraid. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he went out and came in before them. Verse 17. Well, uh, let me give you this first. I gave one of your blanks in there. Saul, having operated under the anointing that is now on David, probably recognizes it. He operated under the anointing for a king. When it left, that anointing left Saul. Samuel went out and anointed David. That anointing for king is now on David. And Saul can probably recognize it. I know that anointing. That used to be mine. It's now on you. So I know what happens. You had to get me out of the way. Under the unction of Satan's forces, he tries to kill the one on whom the anointing rests now. Isn't that amazing to think that Saul has become so deceived that the anointing that was on him is now on David so I can kill him. I don't have that anointing anymore. David does, but I can just pick up a sword, pick up a spear, and kill him. So for Saul, the anointing lifted, but the position and calling remained the same. Can you imagine having to do the same job at work but not having the resources to do it. If you have a job at work and they say, all right, before you had a $1,000 a month to spend on this to get this done, now you have zero. Nothing. But we still want you to get it done. That's, that's kind of what Saul's facing. You still have the job of being king and delivering Israel. No anointing for you. We pulled it. That's tough. How do I fulfill a call without the anointing? Now he sees another out producing him. And this unchecked jealousy produces an anger and a bitterness towards David to the point of trying to kill him. Verse 17, Then Saul said to David, Here is my older daughter Merab. I will give her to you as a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let my hand not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. So David said to Saul, Who am I and what is my life for my father's family in Israel that I should be son-in-law to the king? But it happened at the time when Merab, Merab uh, Saul's daughter, should be given to David that she was given to Adriel, the Mahalathite, as a wife. I'm sure there's a whole lot more to that story than what we're seeing. But he said, I'm going to give you my older daughter. I don't know if David liked his older daughter. I don't know if the older daughter liked David. Don't, none of that seemed to be in the picture. They just said, I'm going to give you to you as, as a wife. And he says, oh man, I'm, I don't know. Being a son-in-law to the king, that's a pretty big deal. Because Saul is thinking this. Nothing more dangerous than a person who has nothing to lose. And David has nothing to lose. He's got no wife. He's got no kids. He goes out. He comes in. But what if he's got a wife at home who says, please come back alive. 
please come back alive. Don't die. Now all of a sudden, the same way that he went out to battle, he's not going out to battle that way anymore. He's trying to figure out how do I save myself instead of how do I defeat the enemy? And that'll change it. There were uh, certain warriors in old times of the Greeks. They had five tribes of the Greeks, but one tribe was more warlike than the rest. Then before they would go off to battle, the wives would come out with the, with the sword and the shield and they would give it to their husbands. And as they gave it to them, they would say this, come back with your shield or come back on it. In other words, if you have to retreat, don't come back home alive. I want you, the wife is telling them this, I want you to give everything you have in that battle. Don't hold anything back. And don't you be worried about me. You focus completely on the battle. And when those guys went out to battle, they were fierce. No other Greeks were as fierce as they. But how much different is it when your wife tells you, come back with your shield or come back on it? That's what they did. Verse 20 now. Michal, Saul's daughter, loved David. And Saul told Saul, uh, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. So Saul said, I will give her to him, that she may be a snare to him, that the hand of the Philistines might be against him. Well, here's a, here's a wife that he would love. Hmm. Surely that'll be a problem. Therefore Saul and David said to David a second time, You shall be my son-in-law today. And Saul commanded his servants, Communicate with David secretly and say, Look, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now therefore, become the king's son-in-law. Does the king have delight in David? No. So Saul's servants spoke these words in the hearing of David, and David said, Does it seem to you a light thing to be a king's son-in-law seeing I am a poor and lightly esteemed man and the servants of Saul said to him saying in this manner David spoke and Saul said thus you shall say to David the king does not desire any dowry but 100 foreskins of the Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemies but Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines if he has to go out there and kill 100 of them He'll die. That's what he was thinking. And so he goes out there and he actually takes his men and they go over and above. <laughs> Verse 26, So when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to become the king's son-in-law. Oh, this is something I can do. Now, I can't pay a dowry for a king's daughter, but I can go out and kill Philistines. <clears throat> now the days had not expired, therefore David arose and went he and his men and killed 200 men of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins and gave them in full count to the king that he might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave him Michal, his daughter, as a wife. Thus Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him. And Saul 
was still more afraid of David. Isn't it amazing how the fear can just keep on growing? Even when good things are happening, we still become afraid. So Saul became David's enemy continually. Saul became David's enemy continually. I have a note in my margin. It says, all the days for the word continually. Every single day, Saul renewed himself on the part of being David's enemy. Every day he woke up and thought, David, my enemy. Now a son-in-law, my enemy. Every day he would wake up and think, David, my enemy. In the afternoon, he would think, David, my enemy. In the evening, before he go to bed, David, my enemy. Continually, he kept thinking this. Then the princes of the Philistines went out to war, and so it was, whenever they went out, that David behaved more wisely than all the servants of Saul, so that his name became highly esteemed. What that means is that servants of Saul, some of the leaders, they would come together. The men would be, some of the men would be nearby and they would begin to talk about the battle strategy. Here they come. And David would step up and say, I think they're coming from here. And if we do this, we will stop them. And then sometimes some of the other leaders would say, I don't think that's right. I think they're coming from here. And we have to do this. And they would listen. And sometimes they would follow what the other people say. And they would go that way. They didn't go with David. And it turned out to be David was right. Oh, we shouldn't have done it that way. And then other times they did what David said. And it worked out exactly. And so the people began to say, David is so wise. And it seems like he knows what they're doing before they do. And he comes up with strategies. I've never heard that strategy before. Who ever heard of this way of Combating, fighting. It's incredible. He didn't just go out there with a battle plan and say, all right, everybody take a guy and kill him. He had strategies. He said, all right, we want hundred of you going over here. I want a thousand of you parked over here. I want the archers over here. And he began to lay it out where everybody should be. How they should go about this battle. And it would work. Because David had a belief in others. If you're going to operate in the wisdom of God, you've got to believe in other people. If you don't believe in other people, you will not be able to walk in the wisdom of God. Because the wisdom of God will cause you to trust and to put things into other people. That is the wisdom of God. To reject it is to keep everything for yourself. And you won't operate in the wisdom of God. You will be resistant to it. So David kept trusting people. We know this because all the other stories have David trusting people, raising people up, getting people who were counted as nothing in society and made them phenomenal warriors. Well, blessing from God, the blessings from God help us in our purpose. Whatever blessings God puts on your life 
are there to help you in the purpose that God has for you. They will help you. And they're good. So if you're the enemy, you have to somehow separate you from the blessings. Because if you keep walking in the blessings, then you're going to keep walking in victory. Now those blessings can be people that God has put in your life. It can be the anointing. It can be wisdom, understanding, strength, protection. These are all blessings from God. And the enemy wants to try and separate you from those things. He wants there to be distance between what God has given you and where you are. He's going to try and, of course the big ones are, he's going to work fear, anxiety, and worry into your minds. Because this is what he does to try and separate you from the blessing. That's what he did with Abram. They're going to kill you. There's no food. Get out of here. He's going to put that fear, anxiety, and worry into your life. He's going to be making accusations. To bring in bitterness, anger, and suspicion. He will use every word that is spoken by the people that are around you and twist them so that you become suspicious, distrusting, therefore separate you from those blessings. He wants anger and bitterness to rise up in you, not the love of God. He's going to try and bring in distractions to keep you from refueling, from praying, from feeding and meditating on God's Word. Because if He can keep you from refueling, from praying, from feeding and meditating on God's Word through distractions, oh, don't forget to do this. Don't forget this over here. Oh, check this out over here. If He can keep doing that, He's going to weaken you. It's going to separate you from the blessing. This is why a few months ago we started that, that thing, first eyes. Make sure the first thing you see in the morning is the Word of God. Before you read your emails or your text messages or your Facebook post, open up the Word of God. Make sure you re- if you're... Uh, nothing else, read your chapter for the day. Now, these things, fear, anxiety, worry... The making of accusations to bring bitterness, anger, and suspicion, distractions to keep you from refueling. These will all sustain conditions that we don't want. We don't like and even pray that God would take them away. God, I got so much fear in my life. I don't want this fear in my life. I got so much worry. I know I'm not supposed to worry, but I got so much worry in my life. I want to get away from this worry. Father, there's so much bitterness in me towards people. I don't want this bitterness to be here. We pray and we ask God for these things to go away. But we're doing the things that maintain them. And the enemy is helping us to maintain these things. See, these things will, these conditions that God told us not to do, don't have any fear, anxiety, or worry about anything, He told us in His Word. Make sure you keep bitterness away from you. Talks about anger and suspicion. Talks about believing the best in people. The enemy doesn't want you to do that. But if I go against God's word, it will sustain conditions I do not want and don't like. I've got to change that support structure and get that stuff out. See, who do you trust? 
Who do you obey? Do you trust God? Do you obey His Word? When He says, don't do this, do you say, all right, I won't do it? Or do you say, well, yeah, I wonder if I could do that a little bit. Maybe I can be a little suspicious. I mean, it's not good to be too trusting, right? Yeah, trust God. See, Satan tried to move you to the place to only trust yourself. He'll tell you things like, no one else has your interest but you. Everyone else is out to get you. Everyone else is out here to try and hurt you. You're too trusting to people. Don't let people in. He's going to try and get you on that path. He's going to try and move you to that place. To only trust yourself because this is going to lead you to the path of selfishness. Selfishness will subvert and remove all loyalty and devotion to anything but self. You will have no devotion to God if you stay on that path. You will have no devotion to a husband or wife. Have no devotion to your children. No devotion to your job. No devotion to anyone. Friends, family. If you stay on the path of selfishness, all devotion to anything but you will disappear out of your life. This is what happens with Saul. He gets on this path and he stays on it. And if we kept on reading in the chapters that are to come, and you can do that maybe later on today or sometime in your home during the week, you're going to see that he gets so caught up with these thoughts, with this suspicion of David, that he leaves the calling of a king, which is to protect the borders of the kingdom. And he takes the army and he parades it around the country to chase after David. No longer protecting the borders. Which means that the Philistines, who were being defeated by the army of Israel on a regular basis, could now come in and make raids on the cities that were near their borders. That people that were there in those cities would die because Saul wasn't around. In this country, how quickly do people jump on the side when something bad happens? Well, where's the president? Where is whatever the, the service that they want? Where's FEMA? Where's, and they'll list the service. Where are they? They should be there. They should be here. Can you imagine in Israel when the Philistines come and attack? How were they allowed? How were they able to do that? This didn't happen when David was with the army. Because eventually David's going to leave. He runs for his life. This didn't happen when David was with the army. Why is it going on now? Well, Saul is taking the, the army and he's chasing David all around the country. Instead of being here to protect us, we're out there doing that. He's not killing Philistines. He's looking to kill a Jewish boy. Eventually, David saw the destruction to the country and knew that this wasn't going to last, and so he said, I have to leave. And he left the country so that Saul could once again focus on protecting the borders and keeping the people safe. But he became so focused, he took all the resources of the country to go after his purpose, 
And while he was chasing him around, you remember the stories where David came upon him? They hid in the cave and Saul went in there by himself. David had the opportunity to kill him. And he didn't. And afterwards, he calls out to Saul and says, Saul, people are telling you the wrong stuff. I'm not out to kill you. See, I had an opportunity. I didn't do it. Two times he did that. I had opportunity. I didn't do it. Would that not be facts in evidence? Shouldn't that change something? But you see, the assumptions that he made brought into deception. And even when confronted with such obvious truth, he could have killed you right there. Even though it was presented. And he had to admit it. Yep. You're right, David. You're more righteous than I. And he leaves them only to come back, chase after him again. Two times he did that. And two times he came back. Because the deception that comes with assumptions is great. What we think we are doing in faithfulness to God, we are only doing to ourselves. Can you see that King Saul probably had some justification for why he's chasing David around? Well, this is an enemy of God. He's trying to take the throne. He's trying to kill me. I have to get him. And I have to use all the resources that God has in order to get get this accomplished. See, what we don't see, we don't battle, we don't guard against. He did not see the deception. He did not see the enemy whispering in his ear. And he didn't guard against it. Would you all stand up with me? Father, we thank you that we can look at examples like Saul. And even though it's a negative story, even though it's a story that shows the downside of what can happen, Father, we can take warning from it and understand we could follow the same way if we receive the same deception. Lord, we don't want to receive that deception. We don't want to walk in the way of folly, foolishness, We want to walk as David walked in wisdom. When we walk in your wisdom, the people around us can see it. The enemy is trying to subvert relationships that we have that you brought along for our benefit. He got us to make assumptions based on things we heard. And deception came in. And he's working on severing those relationships. Some of those relationships might be friendships like David and Jonathan. Husband and wife. Parent, child. Might be some neighbors. Might be some co-workers. He's trying to get us to be suspicious of our God. Does God really have your best interest? How did God let this happen in your life? Father, I thank you that you help us to pinpoint every assumption that the enemy wants us to make and bring your light on that deception so that we don't walk in it. You want there to be a barrier between us and deception. And I thank you. 
I thank you that we walk in it. Give you the glory for that. Father, the people that are here listening, people that are on the Facebook, if assumptions have come into their life, I pray that you bring the people around to help uncover that deception. Uncover that assumption that the light of God can get in. When we have those assumptions and the deception that comes with it, it has brought a darkness on our life that we've gotten so used to we don't even realize it's there. And it keeps us on the path of selfishness. And it leads us right out of the boundaries that you have laid for us. You gave us a sphere of operation to operate here, work in this area, and that path takes us right out. And when we get outside of those boundaries, our faith doesn't work like it's supposed to. Our joy, our peace, confidence, our hope, none of these things work the way you designed them to because we're in the wrong place. Thank you, Father, for the help you give us to overcome and to have the victory. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.